We've been going through a series from John, and the key verse that we looked at from John was John chapter 20, verse 20, 31, which says, so that, that you may believe. And our desire as a church is that as we know him, as we learn of him, that we will be more like him. And that's the uh, desire of John because he points to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And so having uh, been going through these, this book, we are in chapter 5 today. So I want to turn your attention to John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to verse 18. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. So if you will rise with me as I read from God's word in honor of God's word, please be standing and follow with me as I read. After this, there, is a f there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another one steps before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath, so the, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take your bed. But he answered them, the, law, the man who healed me, the, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And he asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know it was who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And that was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we thank you for your word, your word which, is, which throws light into our life, that shows us, Lord, areas and, and places where we have built idols for ourselves against you. And we pray that as we hear your word, that these idols would be broken completely, erased, broken down, crushed, and removed completely. Oh, Lord, we pray that the power with which your word comes would come to us, Lord, first to me and to the ones who hear me this morning. We know, Lord, that unless you work in our midst, we are unable. Uh, we pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. So help us, God. We thank you for answering our prayer in Jesus Christ, the Lord's name. Amen. Please be seated. 
So I want to title today's sermon, A God Who Doesn't Take a Day Off. You see, I want to say no matter what your challenge, once you know who God is, we can, we can see the confidence and the courage to say that God, he does what he promises. He fulfills. And he's the one who came seeking and saying, and he keeps his word. So whether you are at the end of the rope where you feel your bottom is opened up or whether you feel like you don't have answers to the question, whether you, where you feel weary so that you can't even call out to help, no matter where you are, I want you to see from this passage that we have a God who came seeking for us. And so this is, this is the, uh, the joy that we have as we read through this passage. Now, we've looked at John. We've said John is, if you would, written in a unique sign language. Why I say that is because John writes his gospel to point to Jesus Christ as, and he calls all the miracles that he brings, the seven miracles, he calls them signs. Now, signs are something that points you to something else. And so this is the gospel of the sign language, of saying that there is this Jesus Christ I want to highlight for you, I want to point your um, direction to. And in this passage, he says he's a God who does not take a day off. And so the question is, you know, what does that mean, really? You know, you keep saying that, but I really want to know what that means. Now, John, in trying to show that this is Jesus Christ, he is very particular about the signs that he picks. He picks seven signs. And this particular sign, the healing of the invalid, is only in, in the gospel according to John. And so as we look at this, we have to ask ourselves, why would John bring this in? Like, what's his intent? If he's trying to show to us that Jesus is the Son of God, I need to understand the reason why. That is what we want to look at. And, and I pray that as we look at this, that God would speak to us. So first, let's look at the passage, and then we see how that plays out in our lives, all right? So first, the incident. I want to divide this, this incident that happened into three parts. One is Jesus in Jerusalem. Second, Jesus at the pool. And the third, Jesus in the temple. So, Klaus, tell me, first one is Jesus in Jerusalem. Second is Jesus at the pool. And the third is Jesus at the temple. All right, so let's look at the first one, Jesus in Jerusalem. It begins there by saying, after this. Now, you have to stop there. I mean, you know, whenever you see after this, you ask this question, what does that mean, after this? Now, John does not write chronologically. That is, he's not saying this happened and so now this is happening. He's not writing chronology, but he is focusing on a theme. And so he's saying, listen, I've told you something, and after this, I want to tell you something else that's emphasizing who Jesus is. So the question is, like, what did he say just prior to that? In John chapter 4, we read about the woman by the well in Samaria. All right? So it's a good comparison, I guess, if you would see uh, chapter 4, we see a woman by the well who has had five husbands. 
And she's the one who's been looking at the wrong waters to quench her thirst. She's thirsty. She wants to quench her thirst, but she's been looking at wrong waters. And here we have in chapter 5, we have a man by the pool. He's by the five colonnades. Remember again, the five husbands, five colonnades, the number five coming up, which is the work of grace you will see in, in, in the book of, uh, in the Bible. But here is a man who's staring at the wrong waters for the cleansing of his infirmity. Two kinds of people, a man and a woman, looking at wrong places for healing and for quenching of their thirst, and Jesus draws near. Jesus comes drawing himself to these two people. And then it goes on to say, it's the feast of the Jews. Now, when this feast was first given, it was called the feast of the Lord. But somehow here it's been reduced now to just a religious exercise. God is no more present. And we see here, feast of the Jews. Now, this feast... Uh, we, we don't know exactly which feast it is or the feast of the Lord, but there are three particular feasts where men from all over the nation of Israel, all Jews, all Jewish men had to come into Jerusalem for three feasts. One was the feast of the Passover. The second was the feast of the Pentecost. The third was the feast of the Tabernacle. All right, so we don't know which of these feasts, but men are coming in. So we are, we are confronted, as it were, with the first crowd. It is said at that time that Jerusalem would swell by at least three or four times in, in, its, you know, in the number of people who would be in Jerusalem at that time. So this is this crowd that's coming in. This crowd is coming to go to the temple. All right, so that, that is the first of those crowd. But see what the Lord does. He takes a detour, as it were. He takes a detour because he comes to a pool by the sheep gate in Aramaic called Bethesda. Now, this is not a preferred gate. Like, um, the sheep gate is where the sheep to the sacrifice would be taken. The priest who... Um, were to go in to do these religious rites would avoid going in through the gate because they'll become ceremonially unclean. There's something unique about this gate. Now, this gate is where the, uh, who's been taking in who, this, this sheep for what? For sacrifice. Now, that's, that's like a one-way gate. If this sheep has gone in through the gate, it's not going to come out alive. It's going to be sacrificed. Now, we don't know if our Lord has taken that gate. He, we only see that he has he's come to the pool by the sheep gate. But if he did, what a beautiful picture of the Lamb of God who's entered through the gate, who offers himself as a sacrifice. But what is Jesus doing? He comes seeking. He comes seeking. I just love that. In chapter 4, we read, when we're talking about this woman by the Samaria, it says there that he must needs go through Samaria. No Jew must needs go through Samaria. They actually take a detour to get, away, get out of the way to go, not through Samaria, but away. And here we see Jesus. He comes to this man, seeking that one man. And so... We are now at Jesus who is at the pool. And the pool is called Bethesda. Bethesda means Beth is house, Esther is mercy, 
house of mercy. This is where, that is what the pool is, uh, is called. And here at this pool, we are encountering another crowd in verse three. In these lay a multitude of invalids, another crowd. And they were blind, they were lame, and they were withered or they were paralyzed. Now this crowd was not allowed to go into the temple. In Leviticus chapter 21, it gives you a list of things where they, they could not become a priest and eventually they would say that these people are not able to go into the temple. So we have two kinds of crowd. One crowd heading to the temple and you have another crowd here who are unable to go into the temple. Jesus comes looking for that one man in that crowd. And here is a man who's been infirmed for how long? 38 years. For 38 years, he has been sick. Now that's about the lifespan of how long people lived at that time. So he's been sick almost all his life. Almost all his life he has been outside, just, just he could probably see the temple, but unable to go into the temple. And, and Jesus comes to this man and he asks a question, do you want to be healed? Now that's an insensitive question. Right, like if you're sick, if somebody were, you know, someone were to come and say to you, do you want to be healed? You would think like, why would Jesus say that? Why would he say that? Now that, but I want us to understand that Jesus is asking a heart question. Do you want to be healed? I want to suggest to you that when, an answer, when a question is given, do you want to be healed? That's a simple yes or no answer. But when you get more than a yes or no, it comes with a lot of baggage. And there are three kinds of people, I think, who might give this kind of answer. And the first I want to say is that they're not here. The ones who say they're not here. The ones who say I don't have friends. Ones who say my friends have abandoned me. My family has left me. They're the ones who should have taken me to the water. But they're not there. Every time the water is stirring, they're not there. Where are they? I'm here because they are not there. It's their fault for the reason why I'm suffering. They're not there. This, you know, uh, there is this man who, when he was paralyzed, there were four of his friends who took him up and uh, opened up, tore open the roof and lowered him down. And like, I would love to have friends like that, but I don't have friends. So really, if you ask me a question, do you want to be healed, you need to ask those friends who should have been there to help me know I don't have friends. And that comes from prejudice. There's bitterness, there's anger, there's resentment because, oh, this should have happened to me, it's not happened to me. And so if you really want to know, you need to be talking to them who are not here. But not just that, they're not here. The second kind of people would say, you're not enough. You asking me this question, you asking me, do you want to be healed? But you don't understand me. You, you've never walked in my shoes. In fact, I can't even walk. I haven't walked in 38 years. You don't understand my situation. My problem is much bigger than you can even resolve. Even, even, how, how can you even ask that question? I've made an idol of my problem that I feel is too big, no one can solve. 
not even God. You're not enough. And that comes from pride. Because pride says to you that you are so uniquely different and suffering so uniquely that no one can help you. And Jesus draws near to him. And third is the kind of person who says, I'm no good. I've tried. Every time the water stirs, I try. I crawl, but someone else gets it. It's like God's playing a divine uno. Whoever says uno first wins. I can't say uno. Someone else beats me to it. I never get to play and never get to win. Or as if God is running a special spiritual Olympics, higher, stronger, faster. I cannot be higher. I cannot be stronger. I cannot be faster. There are others who are better than me. I'm no good. And that comes from paralysis. That comes from the sense that, uh, you know, you're so weighed down. But Jesus comes and he draws near. Hear the gracious word of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, get up, pick up your bed, and walk. And it says in verse 9, immediately, immediately he was healed. You know, I just love it. I just love this, that our God prepares a meal both in the slow cooker and in the microwave. Right? Whether it's 38 years or whether it's 38 nanoseconds, it doesn't matter. We have a God to, who is not trapped by time, who is not limited by time. It, it might seem to us like a long, long time since he's come to us or drawn to us or done something. Or it seems like we have prayed there are people who just, you know, are healed. But that is our God. He draws near. Immediately. Immediately, he says. I love the way John chapter 1 verse 14 is written. John chapter 1 verse 14 in NLT says, so that the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. You see, the Lord of the universe is here. We don't need to remain an invalid. He says, walk, you don't have to crawl, get up, you don't have to lie down, leave, you don't need to return. That is a God. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. You don't need to make your bed in the same place where you've made it every day. You can get up and go. I, God, has come down for you. But then, we see him at the temple. Verse 14 on. Because this man gets up and he leaves. But in, in between the pool and the temple, there's something interesting that transpires. There is this self-appointed Jewish religious police who come and says, hey, today's Sabbath. Like, how, why do you take your bed and walk? So he says, you know, uh, uh, not my fault, really. 
the man who healed me. I mean, like, as if it happens every day. Like, he, he's not uniquely caught up in the fact that he's been healed. He says, that man who healed me, he's the one who told me to take up the bed and walk. It just gives you a glimpse of his heart at this point because a little later it becomes much clearer because at this point he says, I don't know who it is for Jesus had you know, gone into the crowd and he didn't know who it was but he, he, he doesn't even turn to turn around as to who it is or even thank who he is. Didn't run after him to say, oh, I want to know who this person is but he, he just walks and then when the Jews meet him he says, it's not my fault it's someone else who healed me who told me. The lack of a thankful heart. You see, the Bible points often to the need for a grateful heart to be a godly heart. But yet, Jesus continues to seek him and he finds him in the temple. He's still a seeking God. Still a seeking God for those who have gone into in trying seeking for God, I want us to understand that here is a God who comes seeking. It has been 38 years since this man's been able to enter into the temple. So his great joy must have been like, I need to go into the temple. It would be that I, I, I'll have this Levitical cleansing. Like, you know, I just want to, I want to go. And so he's gone into the temple. He's, he seems to have done all the right things. But in verse 14, if you will look back into verse 14, it says, Jesus, having found him in the temple, said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That nothing worse may happen to you. It's a mysterious injunction. It's a mysterious statement or a command. In effect, in effect, Jesus is saying this, saying, listen, your sickness, your physical sickness is nothing compared to your, uh, is not your worst enemy. That's, that's not what you have to be worried about. Your, your physical well-being is not as, as, as important as your spiritual well-being. In trying to look good in your physical, in trying to look good in your social, don't gamble with the spiritual. There's something we, our hearts say that we have this desire to satisfy religion. We have to do certain things and, and, and it just gives us the satisfaction. But Jesus is saying in trying to satisfy your religion, don't forsake the relationship with me. In another place, Jesus had said this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 and 45. He was talking about the man who was possessed and having been, um, you know, having the, the, the demons of having left him, it says that this man goes searching in the dry places for rest. He goes to these dry places. He goes seek, searching and searching like, I have this desire, you know, I'm healed now, but I need to go and find. And he, and he goes to all these dry places and he doesn't find rest. And then he goes and gathers himself seven more demons and his latter state is worse than his, in his former state. Sometimes we get so caught up in this physical, this emotional that we, we're trying to process that, trying to deal with that, 
and yet what God has told, told us about the, the spiritual, the, the intent of our heart, which really is associated with the, with the spiritual man, is forsaken. And what does this man do? The first thing, when Jesus says that, the first thing he does is to try and absolve himself of responsibility. The first thing that he tries to do is to say, you know what, it was Jesus who told me. Even at that point when he meets Jesus, there's no gratitude slipping his mouth because it reveals an untransformed heart. A lack of gratitude. This man, we don't know, but you know, it could be that he just, he was living on a diet of affirmation. He just wants to be affirmed by people and he rejects therefore the very Christ who can give him that identity and the affirmation and having rejected Christ having preferred religion over relationship with Jesus Christ we see Though that he is physically healed, he remains spiritually blind, spiritually lame, spiritually withered. He was in the temple of the Lord, but he had rejected the Lord of the temple. You know, we, we see sometimes, you see, I look at this man and I say, when we don't receive from God, when there's a delay for whatever reason, God has not answered your prayer. We, we grumble, we, you know, we're frustrated, and, and this gracious God provides. And having provided, now we are caught up in the blessing. We are so excited with the blessing that we forget the blessor the one who blessed. And, and we see that that is what this man seems to be doing. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, why did John bring this sign? Why, why is he talking to us about this? What's he trying to say about Jesus Christ? And that's what happens in the rest of the chapter uh, where uh, initially the, the, uh, to the accusation that the Jews give saying that, how come you're breaking the Sabbath? And he says this question, uh, uh, he answers the question, sorry, by giving, there are 12 things that he says he does as the Son of God. The things that only God were to do, he does. And then he brings in seven witnesses of his work. Now, I want you to go home and and look through that passage and to find the 12 things that Jesus is doing that affirms to us that he is the Son of God and, and, and he provides seven witnesses, okay? But um, to this question, why are you doing this work? Why are you breaking the Sabbath? Now, I want us to understand there is no uh, law that prevented people to show mercy on Sabbath. 
In fact, it was expected to show mercy. There, there's a verse in Luke chapter 14, verse 5, where, where the Lord says, which of you having a son or an ox when it's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? You see, mercy was expected. And, and so this answer, in this answer, he's revealing to us who he is. He is equal to God. His, his personhood and his character is coming. Uh, and so, so this is the Jesus I want to present to you. When I say, why is he the one who takes no break or takes no day off on a Sabbath? He says, mercy is not something I take a day off for. Mercy is something I do every day. It's new mercies every day. Even in your off time, and in your downtime, when you are down, I'm here providing new mercies for you. I am the one who gives grace upon grace. I take no break from mercy in showing you mercy. And this Jesus, who, who comes to Bethesda, I mean, I, I just love that, right? And this is the house of mercy. And the only person who can really make that the house of mercy is the Lord of mercy himself. And Jesus comes, and, he, and he's saying, where have you made your bed today? He is asking you, where have you made your bed today? What is making you that invalid that you can get up and that you, you can get up and walk, you can get up and go. You don't have to be in the same place where you've been every day. It's, there's no noble situation. Just wake, get up and uh, wake up and get up. Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9 says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He is slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are all over all his work. And he says, mercy, I don't take a break from that. I don't take a break from loving you. I'm the one who went searching for that woman by the, by the well. I'm the one who went to that man by the pool. Will I not come searching for you? Will I not come to seek, uh, seek you in your place and draw you out, get up, walk? In... Hebrews 1.3, we read, I uphold the universe by the word of my power. I'm paraphrasing it, but uh, it says that he upholds the universe by the power of his word. And a God who can uphold the whole universe, he says to you today, will I not hold you together? Will I not uphold you in my hands? question we have to ask ourselves is we have a God who came seeking us. What is our response? What is it that we are doing? How do we respond? Do we just, you know, do we just take the bed and walk away and, and refuse to turn around and, uh, with gratitude? Remember the ten lepers, only one turned around? would be, be the ones who therefore show no gratitude. What will our response be? I 
do want to say that we have no other person, no other one who draws like he himself draws near, right? And until now we have seen who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, I am the only one who can make your future better than your past. I'm the only one who keeps the better wine for the last. Your future is better than the past. It's only in Jesus Christ. I'm the one who gives you new birth, the one who, as Nicodemus came in and he said, you should be born again, and it's in believing in me that you will have this new birth. I'm the one who can quench your thirst, oh woman. I'm the one who can heal you, oh man. I can create this, maybe invalid for a long, long time, almost all your life, but here I come. I have come to give you life and life abundance abundant. That is Jesus. And so I ask myself, as I'm reminded about this Jesus, my my response would be that I would say, yes, indeed, O Lord, that you alone are worthy. You alone are the one who is, who came searching for me, and my heart is filled with gratitude. I want to close with this, uh, with this uh, song by Andrew Peterson. The song is, He is Worthy. And he writes, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. He is worthy, he is worthy of all, ble- <coughs> sorry, of all blessing and honor and glory. He is worthy of this. Is he worthy of this? He is. There of all of us who are here today, there are response to this God who drew himself near, made him to himself as a man, took our place on the cross, who died, was buried, is risen again. There are response to him would be indeed he is worthy. Not the religion, but Jesus Christ. Not be trapped by what man would think of me, but Jesus Christ. And that in all things, that he alone would be glorified in our presence. May he be worthy indeed in our lives. Father God, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for, for sending us your son. Lord, when we are reminded often, Lord, as to why there's such evil in this world and and we're not able to come to terms with um, the wickedness around us. We forget two things, Lord. One is we forget the wickedness in our own heart, our unresponsive heart to all your goodness that you have given us in your Son. And we pray today that we will affirm, Lord, that this heart belongs to you and this life is yours alone that our hearts would be filled with gratitude for who you are and our response would be to your praise and to your, and to your glory. And we also forget, Lord, that, that you sent your son to die this cruel death 
that when we look at the wickedness on the outside, we see that your son was, was sent to bear upon himself all the, the sins of the world, that the wicked men would, would lay hold of him and do to him as they pleased. You sent your son so that what happened to him would not happen to us and that through his death we would have life. And so, oh, Father, we pray that we would always turn as a community here, as a local church here, as once here, we would turn to look at you, oh, your son, oh, oh Father, that we, your son would be the one who fills our heart, that he would be indeed our beloved, and that we would be his, uh, his that he is us, and he is ours, and we are his, and that that, that, that joy of intimacy, the, the relationship would be, would be true for us, Lord, in, in this week to come. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for hearing our prayers and all that you've been to us in Jesus Christ.